Broadcasting live high atop the Sunset Strip, deep in the heart of Tinseltown, via the World Wide Web at www.edamrocksradio.com. It's the Edam Rocks Radio Show. Oh, my goodness! And now, your host, Son Edom. And welcome to another edition of what I like to call From Nonsense to Godsense, as we take a look at some of the issues going on in today's world, and we take a look at them through a biblical perspective. And on the episode today, we're going to talk about a book, So the Next Generation Will Know, is the title of the book, and the author is J. Warner Wallace. He's a best-selling author, speaker. You might know him from Cold Case Christianity. And uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us here today. Oh, just delighted to be with you. Glad to be here. So in this day and age, it seems like the younger generation is under assault from the secular culture. And on top of it, there seems to be a trend towards the younger generation disengaging from the church. So there's an assault on them from the secular culture. They're leaving the church. So that raises the question, how can we connect these uh, young people and teach them the biblical principles that they need and get them engaged in a biblical worldview? Yeah, it does. And I think a lot of this we experience even anecdotally or and you can see it statistically, right? So I try not to be like um, ringing, this, ringing this bell like an alarmist, right? But, but we do see uh, certain patterns of young people at the very least not being as comfortable identifying uh, as Christians, identifying with the church as maybe a generation ago, right? And that may simply just be because, let's face it, we've always, um, if it's kind of cool and acceptable by the culture, then we're more likely to identify with it, right? And maybe a generation ago, two generations ago, your Christian identity at least wasn't opposed, at least wasn't under complete attack, you know, by the culture. And as it is, uh, as the moral teaching of Jesus as comes under attack, uh, well, then get ready. Uh, those of us who maybe were only identifying this way because it was um, helpful to us, I mean, even in politics you see this, right? People will identify as a Christian if they feel like it has political capital. Well, for young people, a lot of them are looking at, the, at this worldview and asking themselves, really, do I want to be seen in this way, especially if um, the entire cultural media uh, portrays us in a way that doesn't seem favorable. So I'm not surprised this is happening, but at the same time, those young people who maybe were less likely than they used to be to identify as Christians, they're not saying they're atheists. They're not necessarily walking away from even their Christian beliefs. They just, when push comes to shove, they don't really um, identify this way anymore. It wouldn't be their first choice of identification, and they aren't necessarily as well-versed, because uh, the culture used to be well-versed in the Christian worldview as that is kind of waning, our young people maybe aren't as well-versed either. So there's some work for us to do, but I'm really highly optimistic that we can do this, and it's just a matter of us uh, making it a priority. So are you talking about the young people today are, is it, is it, a, as, is it a topic of theology or just a topic of terminology? Well, I think it's both. I mean, I think if, if you, when you poll both going back to millennials and Gen Z, which is the generation we're talking about in this book, um, you'll see that for the most part, um, they are um, theologically illiterate uh, often. They, they, don't, you, they might say, well, I'm a Christian. If they do, even if they do identify as Christians, if you drill down and ask, what does that mean? Like, what do you believe about certain tenets of the Christian faith? You'll be surprised to find that they're not very well, uh, not very articulate. And so even though they, they would say they, they, they would identify this way, for those who do, what does that really mean? Does it, does it mean we believe we accept certain principles, biblical principles? Well, what are those principles? And that's where it starts to get a little messy. So I think it's, it's a, both a definition, and it's also us mining out, you know, what do we really mean by this? So, and, and young people, for the most part, I think want, look, 
this is a noisy world we're in right now, right? And not only is it a noisy world, we're actually able to carve out um, an experience online that is very personal. So, for example, if you have a certain political view, oh, you can find news uh, that just affirms your political view. You can find commentary. You can find movies. You can find any form of media that just becomes an echo chamber for whatever it is you believe. And young people do this as well. In other words, they have complete autonomy now and control. They don't even have to wait and watch. the. Sh- when I was a kid, if a show came on TV and you missed it, guess what? You missed it. And then you had to wait for the rerun, hopefully. And if you missed the rerun, you're out of luck altogether. Well, now we're in a generation where they can say, I'm not going to watch it tonight. I want to watch it on demand when I want to watch it. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to miss anything. That kind of control and autonomy, I think, uh, works against us when we're offering a worldview of submission uh, that has a meta-narrative, uh, a, go- a story about God that transcends all of us. It is not a matter of subjective opinion. And now we're in, entering into a world in which young people have subjective personal control over every aspect of their media consumption and now most of their lives. And then the question becomes, how do I then make, how, why would they think this is an attractive worldview when the, the, the technology itself is enabling them to have more and more control over their world. So I think it's, 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 uh, we are, that's some things we have to think about as we, as we kind of talk about the Christian worldview with young people. You know, when you talk about a Christian worldview and you talk about the social media platforms and, and the influence that's put upon young people today, and you talk about this assault by the secular culture in today's society, it seems to be like at an all-time frenzy. I know you alluded to that. You have these activists like in the LGBT community that have uh, you know extreme views. You have uh, an extreme pro-choice lobby. You have celebrities and other people of influence. You know, putting pressure on these kids to only ex- uh, only accept the liberal agenda, and then actually call them out as vile and evil if they do hold a biblical worldview on some of these issues that are raging today. So I think that kind of puts people in kind of like a tug of war of their beliefs, what to believe. Celebrities and these people are saying one thing. Maybe my my uh, grounding and my my uh, upbringing says another thing, and they're kind of being pulled back and forth. Yeah, well, there's no doubt that if you are to poll Gen Z on the hot topic, hot button kind of uh, moral issues of the day, you will find, and I assume, look, I, I'm on staff uh, at Summit Worldview Conference, which we're, we're just training up young Christians, uh, uh, high schoolers. Uh, we do this every two-week immersion program there, at, and it's great. It's this Christian worldview, and and I so I've been working with high schoolers for a, quite a bit. And what I what I tend to, to notice, and this is true statistically as well, is that young people, um, for the most part, have already accepted the view related to sexuality, gender, marriage, homosexuality. These are things that whatever the culture has been teaching, young, Gen Z for the most part embraces the cultural view over the biblical view. So when I'm speaking to a group, it's not like maybe a, a two generations ago where you would have been speaking to high schoolers and saying, hey, I know that you've been raised this way, and now I'm going to help you defend this to a culture. Well, now you're talking to, to young people who already accept the cultural view. In other words, you might as well be talking to unbelievers about these hot topic issues. And that's the approach I usually take. Now, here's what I, I discovered, is that, that I think there's still an attraction um, even though the culture is kind of kicking the moral teaching of Jesus to the curb, and they are for the most part, they're still an attractive. Uh, they're still attracted to the person of Jesus for for a number of reasons, 
And so what I ask young people is simply to ask themselves, are you committed to being a Jesus follower? Because if you're going to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, then that means you're going to have to, to expect what he predicted. He told us this. Even in every sermon, at some point he turned a corner and said, by the way, this view I'm teaching you right now is going to make you the least popular person in your class, <laughs> the least popular person in your friend group. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed, they have, people love this Sermon on the Mount. This is this is this is this is a compassionate Jesus. Blessed are the poor and in, in, in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful, the gentle. He ends that by saying, "Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and." falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, the prophets were persecuted before you. In other words, if you decide to do what the prophets did, which is to speak the words of God into a world of humans, to reflect the Christian worldview to your friends and to your culture, get ready. You're going to be insulted and persecuted, and all kinds of things are going to be said against you falsely because of me, because of the teaching that I have given you. In other words, are you ready? And we're going to follow this guy. This is not going to go well. This is going to, you're going to be not going to be, you're not going to be the most popular person on Instagram. And that's just not going to be the case. If you speak the words of Jesus, well, Jesus didn't really say anything about homosexuality and gender, did he? I mean, I, this is what I see young people doing, trying to figure out a way to kind of to, to move us in a direction that maybe maybe this is something we can interpret now in the 21st century in a different way. Really? No, actually, Jesus said something about all. But first of all, Jesus said nothing about rape and nothing about elder neglect and nothing about child abuse and nothing about bestiality. He said a lot of things that you would say, yeah, I get it. I'm not just because he didn't say anything about those. Here's what he said. He said, I didn't come to replace the law. I came to fulfill it. In other words, if you're wondering what I think about this and what God says about this, go back to Moses, because whatever he said, I endorse. I came here to fulfill that. So, so if you're wondering what God said, now that puts us in a bad spot, because look, I'll be honest with you, I was not a Christian until I was 35. Uh, my first career was in the arts. I was in a, des a designer in Santa Monica. I worked in an architectural firm. I have a master's degree in architecture before I ever worked a cold case. And now I'm known as this cold case detective, but trust me, I had a whole life before that. And I don't often, I mean, there are some things I wish weren't true about the moral teaching, just because I have a lot of friends who disagree with me on these issues. But if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I'm going to have to make a decision. And I, I don't, be, don't be surprised if that decision to follow Jesus comes with difficulties. So we have to help our young people know, is this true? Is what he said, can we trust what the Bible says about what Jesus is teaching? Can we trust what the Bible says about anything? And if we can, we have to be ready, because he predicted this. It's not like this is going to be a surprise. It shouldn't surprise us. Jay Warner Wallace joining us. He is the author of the new book, So the Next Generation Will Know, talking about just the struggles maybe that the, uh, that the younger generation goes through when it comes to looking at the world through the secular eyes or a biblical worldview. And in the book, there's a lot of chapters that seem to relate to love. For example, love responds, love understands, love relates, equips. So love uh, seems to be the foundation for reaching young people and connecting with them and getting them to embrace the Bible and a Christian perspective. 
Yeah, you know, I, it's probably because, you know, I'm not what we would call a Christian apologist, and for that that word sometimes creates confusion. What it really means is I'm a case maker. I make a case for why Christianity is true. And, and Sean's dad, Sean McDowell, my co-author, his dad is Josh McDowell, the famous apologist. And Sean is, I think, as, as good, if I hate to say it, if not better, than his dad was writing those. I mean, he's just a great apologist in his own right. And I would tell you that uh, we typically get a label, right, that, that you guys are all about, you know, like truth, 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 like kind of like a hammer looking for a nail. And that's not, I get it. And sometimes when you do this kind of work, you forget that there's a relationship between, re, uh, well, relationships and truth, love and truth, that is powerful. And it's not an either or, it has to be a both and, especially with young people. They've got access to more information than any other generation has had. They've had it since they were born. They are digital natives. They are grew up in the information age. They're the first generation to be entirely raised in this information age that allows them to access answers to anything. But those answers they're finding online are relationship-less. They, they, don't, they don't know those people they're talking to, on, that, that they're hearing from online. Uh, it turns out the most influential uh, you can be is when you marry the two things together, two sides of the same coin, relationship and truth, relationship and truth. Now, you've got a relationship with your kids, and we wrote this book for parents and, and youth pastors and Christian educators. We have relationships that we can leverage. The question is, do our kids see us as sources for truth? Do they think we're authoritative? If we don't know how to answer the, the basic questions that young people have about God, about the Bible, about Jesus. Why is this true? How do I know this is true? How can I be certain this is true? They're going to look for those answers online, and the most they're going to see is negative, because if you Google reliability of the Bible, um, you're going to find that most of that first two or three pages is mostly anti-Christian stuff, not Christian stuff. So they're going to see all that. We have to become authoritative, but then we can capitalize on something that the, the Internet does not have. And that is relationships with our young people. Now, in the past, parents get this and they maximize relationships, but they may not be authoritative in terms of being able to answer questions. It's, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. So if you feel like, I can't answer those questions for my kids, well, there's where your homework is. Because uh, once you can do that, you will have the secret sauce that I think can reach this generation. A generation that, although they have access to people on social media, describe themselves as probably as the loneliest generation. They lack physical proximity, and that does count for something. Well, you happen to have that with your young people. And so I think that's something we can, we can capitalize. And we talk about strategies in the book that will help parents and youth workers and, and uh, Christian educators capitalize on the relationships they're building. Yeah, it's all about that special sauce, like you mentioned, that little something that's going to connect one unit to the next, and a lot of times uh, that's what makes that bond so special. You mentioned online and the influences. You know, social media, every kid I know, actually everybody I know pretty much has a, um, a smartphone. I think the percentage was like 95% of high schoolers have a smartphone. Right. You know, you have Instagram, you have Facebook, you have Snapchat. I, I'm sure there's other social media sites that are out there that kids are a part of that are big influences that I don't even know exist right now. But this is what the younger generation is facing. And when you look at the amount of time kids spend on social media, it seems like it really makes that social media platform a huge mission field. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And 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 if nothing else, I, I kind of look at it this way. You know, we've always had adva- technological advances in the way we communicate with each other. So I'm sure that there was a time when uh, the, a generation was shaking their fist at this new dang-fangled thing called a telephone, period. I mean, the kids don't go outside anymore. They don't talk to each other face-to-face. They're always on the phone. Okay, well, uh, that's pretty much what we're seeing now. It's not like the, 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 the things that drove us a generation ago aren't still driving us. It's still a, a desire for community. It's a desire um, to be accepted. These are all these are things that are we talk about timeless things in the book and timely things in the book. So in the end, we're just seeing the same expression of timeless desires expressing themselves in a timely way. And so I really think this is I don't I'm not the kind of person this is we've got to get our kids to spend less. Good luck with that, trying to get them to spend less time with the new technology. It's not as though our parents or two generations ago, the parents who first encountered the telephone were able to convince their kids to spend. No, that eventually becomes a manner and this becomes part of the culture. So I think rather than shake our fist at it and say, we've got to figure out a way to stop this. Instead, we've got to recognize what does this mean then? For our young people, how does this change the way they see the world? And where can we come alongside young people to help them navigate this tool? And knowing that in the end, our relationships put us in a place that's far superior to whatever relationships they can. Because we have physical, real, in, in, in present together relationships with young people, and we can actually use those to uh, achieve a better a better end, and so it does come down to and look, I, I, we we were sensitive to this this idea that number one, no parent wants to be reminded of the sixty ways they've dropped the ball. So you don't need a book to remind you. Of, look, I, I I get that we we have probably dropped the ball as parents, Sean and I, as much if not more than anybody we know. So so we want to be transparent about that, and we are. You can learn from our mistakes, which we describe in the book, things we tried and failed. Um, especially when trying to help kids understand what is a Christian worldview, what does it teach, how, does it, how can you embrace it in a way that you're passionate about it. But we've tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work and some stuff that did. We want to share both of those. Also, we didn't want another book. I can't imagine as a parent being interested in a book that requires me to do 100 new things that I don't even have time for. I didn't have time for before. Why would I have time for it now? We get that too. So what we're trying to do is help parents to see that there are opportunities that are organically occurring with their young people, that they don't have to add, you know, a, a Bible study night on Sunday nights. You can if you want. That's great. But what what is going to happen today that would give you an opportunity to 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 solidify a Christian worldview in the lives of your kids? It's just going to happen whether you recognize it or not. An opportunity is going to slip by. We want to help you become sensitive to those opportunities so when they occur. You're like going, oh, this is what they're talking about. I can do this, and you hop in and you do it. So that's kind of our approach in the book is to give you some things that feel like they're more organic and less contrived because in the end, I don't know that any of us has – feels like that's another burden that most people are like, I, I'm already tapped out. I can't do this extra thing, and we, want, we were sensitive to that. Jay Warner Wallace joining us, the author of the new book, So the Next Generation Will Know. You might also know him as uh, the author of the book, Cold Case Christianity. And we're just talking about the uh, the next generation, trying to get them equipped with a biblical worldview, how to reach them, and maybe some of the struggles that they face in this life. You know, one of the parts in the book that I thought was kind of interesting, we've been talking about social media, smartphones, things like that. But um, 
you know, you got iPhone 10, 20, 50, you know, all these latest, greatest phones come out and everybody has to get the greatest, latest phone, most expensive, things like that. If you have like an older phone, sometimes you get phone shamed. You know, high schoolers can be kind of cruel that way. But in the book, you talk about, you know, you didn't get your daughters the smartphones until they were like, I think, junior, senior year in high school. Um, was that, and I think the reason was because you wanted to protect them from danger and the dangers of yeah. the smartphone and stuff. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, and you, and you know what it is, too? It's not even sometimes so much um, that I was worried about. I, I am worried about dangers that, that occur. with there. You have to be, I'm a cop, obviously, and so... Uh, I see. Unfortunately, I've seen this in my casework. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely sensitive to it. But even more broadly, there's this. There's and my wife and I have always talked about this. You, you know, it's it's like uh, I want to protect their innocence for as long as I can. Um, I think there's an appropriate time when you're going to have to deal with all kinds of tough conversations and tough realities with your kids to protect them and teach them how to protect themselves. And yeah, we're going to have those conversations too. But I don't want to have to have them before I have to have them. You know, I want to, I want to be able to, to, uh, to pick my, my, my times. Um, and, and, and a lot of that is, is just hoping that, because it's amazing to me, even if you felt like you could filter out some of this stuff for your young people on your phones, it's not as though they have no access to their friends. And by the way, even when they don't have phones, they're going to have access to their friends. So it's not as though you're really going to be able to uh, protect them entirely. And so I, I get that. So I want to prepare them. Uh, but also, um, I think, uh, like, look, I didn't have, uh, growing up, uh, the best car I own is not, a, I own right now in my 50s. And, and it's not as though this is a great car, but it's the best car. I mean, it, was, it seems to me that you, there, there's, there's things to look forward to. And, and, and so I want, and, and if, you, if you have those things too early, you lose the ability to look forward altogether. So the, part of it was just me wanting to, to give them something to look forward to and not to provide them with too much too soon to protect their innocence for as long as I could, and also just to be cautious about the stuff that's out there, right? Also, look, think about it. I wanted the time to instruct my kids before the world began to instruct my kids. And, and we think sometimes that, oh, yeah, well, the biggest challenge for, for, for young Christians is when they get to college. Actually, the, the data on this is pretty clear, that, that young people do not leave the faith uh, as much in college as they do as junior hires. If you ask kids in, in their 20s, when did you first check out and, and really kind of determine this was not true and not for you or whatever, and they will tell you, yeah, it's like 10 to 17. The polls tell us to be sometime between the age of 10 and 17. And, that's probably, and, and that age is dropping probably for a reason because they're exposed to more and more of social media, of, of, of content, all the, the voices that they hear now on the Internet. These are things that I think have an impact on our young people earlier than we think. So if I can have some influence during those years, the early years when people actually are making decisions like this, that we might have thought in the past it's not happening that early. No, actually it is. I want to have be the largest voice in their lives in, the, in that time span. And that simply means that I have to spend time uh, and make sure that, that, that I am the, the, the major voice in their lives. That's why I delayed the, the kind of uh, their access to, to the phones and, and, and all that, so I, I can still have some, some say in this. Now, once you've inoculated your kids, I'm not trying to keep them from bad ideas. They're going to hear the bad ideas. But I simply want to inoculate them before they hear those. I want to be the first place that my young people hear wrong things. So, for example, I want to expose them to the wrong idea and then explain to them why it's wrong before they first hear it in a classroom or from a friend 
I, I want to be, the, as a youth pastor, that was always my goal. If there's going to be an atheist objection to the Christian worldview, they're going to hear that from me first before they hear that from the world. And I think that's it's a good strategy to inoculate your kids rather than isolate them. You know, you talked about earlier a little bit about uh, disengaging from the church, and especially those middle school years, junior high years, as we used to call them anyways, and the amount of access people have to uh, smartphones, internet, things like that, social media. Do you think that it's a good idea for the church to use those platforms to reconnect with the kids and to re-engage them in the church? Well, I, I think it's a good idea to, to use social media platforms the same way you would use a telephone or an email or any other method of communication. I, I, I do not um, think, I'm not interested in competing with the world in a kind of a coolness uh, contest, okay? That, that's not my, my goal. But I will tell you, I do have a goal um, that is simply to, to use those, uh, those uh, methods of communication to, to connect my kids to each other and to connect my kids to what we're doing next, to, just to communicate the same way I would have communicated with a telephone in the past or the same way I would have communicated. Because it's just another form of technology that will help us to, to, to communicate in that way. Um, I, I think part of the, the problem is is that you might find yourself trying to, communic- trying to, uh, to compete with, with the world around you um, and I, I think that really what young people want instead is, is, is truth. I talk about this in the book in terms of a chapter I wrote that really just deals with how do, I re, how do we return passion uh, to the Christian worldview? Because we all are passionate about something. In your family, my family, I'm, I'm passionate right now. It's basketball. It's the end of the basketball season. It is playoff time, and I am a huge sports fan. And if you're around me much right now, my kids are all adults, but if you're around me right now, you know that how much I could tell you probably 50 things about both teams, the lead players. on. I know all the players on both teams. I know what they're good at. I have predictions I can make about how these games are going to turn out. Why? Because I am obsessively interested in the NBA. Really? So, so am I more interested? Do my kids know that I am more interested? Because you can tell by how much I'm able to talk about something, how knowledgeable I am about a topic, how much of uh, my he- the headspace I have is occupied by this topic, how much, if you're at my dinner table, how much do I talk about it? Look, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you will know what I love just from the nature of my conversations at the dinner table. Do our kids know that we are that excited about the things of God? You know, we get to go to a basketball game. That's the way we say it. We get to go to the basketball game tomorrow night. It's going to be awesome. How often do you talk about church that way? We get to go, or is it we have to go, or we ought to go, or we need to go? Really? I mean, it, it, it's about language. It's about, it's about passion that I hold as a parent for something. My kids are going to catch that passion, even if I don't try to make them catch that passion. So uh, what I talk about in the book is that if, if you simply shift this one thing, everything will change. Shift from just telling your kids what is true to providing Two whys for every what. We do a lot of what's. What is true about God? What is true about the Bible? What's true about Jesus? What does Jesus teach on this? What does God say about that? What, 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 what? That does not typically engender um, passion and excitement because young people, they've got so many what's being told to them, especially online. I think we're going to see if what's. Now, if you'll shift and give two whys for every what, the first why is, okay, so why is that true? I mean, well, on the basis of what evidence? 
can you support that claim? Because I'll tell you what, every other what I'm hearing online, they're telling me all their what's are evidentially true based on science. So if you just got this what you want me to embrace, but blindly, I mean, I, there's no reason just because the Bible says it so. And I look, I, I'm with you. I, I believe in the supremacy and the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. But young people simply need me to make a case for that first, so that when I make this claim, they, they, that, that, that why is covered. Why is this true? On the basis of what evidence should I even believe this is the Word of God? Because trust me, my friends who are Mormons, they make a claim from the Book of Mormon. And I got friends now in culture, you're exposed to everything online, right? So you're going to have contact with people of every stripe of Jews, Jewish believers, uh, Muslim believers, uh, you know, atheists, uh, Buddhists, uh, Baha'i. I mean, we're going to hear it all. And, and everyone makes the same kind of claim. So on the basis of what evidence should I trust the Christian claim, that's the first why. But even if you can tell them what is true and why it's true, the second why might be more important in terms of passion. And the second why is simply, okay, great. This is your claim. I see why you believe that's true. Why should I care? Because that's great for you, Dad, Mom, but you're, you're not me. And uh, I live in a different environment than you. Why should I care? What impact does this have on my life? Why, should, why does it matter? That second why, I think, changes everything. And so what I've simply started doing is I stopped just giving what's, 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 what's. Two whys for every what. You'll see a huge change in your conversations. It's more challenging, for sure, because as a parent, we may not sometimes even know some of these whys. We haven't maybe thought about it that way, start thinking about it that way, that we owe it to our kids to be able to, because trust me, the world out there is giving them the two whys for every what. And we need to do the same thing as Christian parents. Jay Warner Wallace joining us, author of the new book, So the Next Generation Will Know. And in the book, you guys talk about some other highly impactful mediums, such as movies, music. You've got YouTube out there, you know, so many other uh, that you mentioned in the book, for example. And, and in that, you mention, you know, pastors, youth ministers. They could use these movie clips to drive home the message of the scripture passage or maybe topic that they've been discussing. So... One, maybe touching that a little bit, but it also comes down to, I guess, finding out what the latest trends might be that the kids are involved with, and then finding out how to make that relatable and engage the kids through those trends. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, even if you don't, like, you can't list, uh, you know, the top forty songs right now on the pop charts. You're probably listening to them with your kids on the way to school, <laughs> whether you like them or not, right? You're, those they're there, and and you're you're stuck listening to those. Um, and 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 even if you don't know who that artist is, if you listen carefully, you can catch the words from those songs. And what we've started doing, and a long time ago, is that I want to be able to talk about those concepts with my kids and just be able to ask you know the question, wow do you hear what I'm hearing and what do you think about that? And, and is that, do your friends agree with that kind of a view or do you, how do you feel about that kind of a view? We, we, can, we talk about concrete examples of using the moments in your life that surround your consumption of movies and music and news that comes on the radio or comes on social media, pops up on social media, sporting events, uh, political events, whatever it is to generate conversations but without you having to carve aside a time to say, well, I need to teach you about this concept now. Well, actually, we have teachable moments that are more organic than that. And it turns out young people are, are, will respond to those because they're media-driven moments. And I think those are really helpful uh, for us as parents to be able to capitalize on. So, so what we talk about in the book is definitely, hey, how do we, 
how can we capitalize on uh, the moments that are available to us? Especially like right now, some of these Marvel movies are like the most popular movies um, ever. You know, I mean, they're they're setting records, and, and and a lot of these Marvel movies are driven by superhero characters, which for generations have been prototypes of Christian worldview concepts. You know, they're kind of the Jesus story over and over and over again, and, and many times they are. And so the question for us is, are, are we prepared? Uh, are we able to um, to see that? And and talk, if nothing else, a lot like the Endgame, the, the latest Marvel movie has got so many Christian concepts related to friendships and sacrifice and duty and all kinds of things that we could be talking about with our young people, and I just want us to miss the opportunity. Jay Warner Wallace with us. The book is So the Next Generation Will Know. And with what we've been talking about today, which is pretty much how to reach the next generation, all the influences on the young people today, maybe the assault from the secular society, parents might be out there listening and thinking, wow, there's music, there's movies, some stuff I don't know what they're talking about, some lyrics I don't know. They've got all this swirling around in, uh, swirling around in their head. So I guess the first thing would be, in order to get the ball rolling, what are some steps a person could take to begin that journey of reaching these kids? Okay, first step is is this idea of two whys for every what. Uh, number two, we offer a, an approach, a broad approach, teaching Christian worldview that I call TAB training, T-A-B. And what TAB training is, I did this as a youth pastor, but I also incorporated it as a parent. And that was uh, just to make sure that my kids were ramped up and ready to go in the three areas, the T, the A, and the B, which were, for the most part, um, theology, um, apologetics, uh, why is this thing theologically true? That's the first why. And the B is for behavior. If this is true, there ought to be an outcome. If this theological truth is true, and we can defend it, we can explain why we think this is true, that's the A, then our lives ought to be different on the backside based on this truth, that's the B. And, and so what I've tried to do is, is to divide all conversations up into either uh, establishing the T, defending it with the A, or making sure my kids understand why this is so important with the B. And, and so a lot of this uh, has been, uh, the, the, you know, we talk about this and give you concrete examples of how to do this in the book, but this idea of, of, of seeing that, that, I can tell you as a youth pastor, for example, the parents of my students, my high schoolers, when I was youth pastoring high schoolers, did not really care, sadly, as much about their theological knowledge as they did about their behavior. Just make sure my kid's not doing these four, four things I, I, I want to prevent. And they were like, that's, that's the goal. The goal is to keep my kids out of trouble, you know, <laughs> to keep my kids out of you know, smoking dope and skipping rope and all the stuff that we, we do as, as, as high schoolers, right? Um, that was really more important. The B, the B was the thing, the behavior. But it turns out if you don't establish the T and the A, the, the, the theology behind this and the reasons why we believe that is true theologically, you never get to the B. Um, and, and if you do, uh, you look, in the end, I want people to know this is true, young people to know this is true. So in that season when they're doing stupid, because we all do stupid for a season, um, that's fine. That's on them. If they want to ignore the, the, the reality of Christianity because they want to chase their passions, I would prefer them not to. But if they do that, what can I do? That's on them. But if they don't think this is true because I haven't established that for them in a way that's compelling, that's on me. So I always say, look, I, I get it. We're gonna, kids are going to do what they're going to do. I did that, too. I wasn't a Christian until I was 35. But 
once you know this is true in a way that you can actually investigate it and and trust me, people are more likely to come back to that truth after a season of stupid than they are if they simply think this the Christian worldview is only what's true for me personally, it works for me. Well, there's going to be days when it's not going to work for you. And if you don't establish the truth of this for your young people, then, then they're far more likely to have a longer season without God than they are if you've established that it's actually true. Jay Warner Wallace with us. The book is So the Next Generation Will Know. ColdCaseChristianity.com is the website, the book you can get at all the usual book stops. And and Jim, uh, before we go, a couple things. Uh, First, can you share with us what your faith means to you? Well, I mean, I'm somebody who um, was such a skeptic for so many years that um, when I realized that this was not just a matter of uh, opinion from some brand or just this thing that works uh, as a kind of utilitarian value. But when I got to a point where I could assess this using the skills I had as a detective and I knew it was true, that changes everything. Uh, for me, it changed everything. Um, I often say I'm not a Christian because it works for me. Um, I think that my life, if you ask my, my wife, we were together for 18 years before we got became Christians, um, she would probably say those 18 years were easier in many ways than the 22 that have followed. Because, you know, it's really easy to throw the dart against the wall and just draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. And as a non-believer, I had a moral code that I had invented for myself. And um, it worked for me. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you, how do I know how well I was doing? Well, just ask me. I'll tell you, I'm doing great. And um, but but now as a Christian, I realize that that bullseye is drawn before I ever get to the wall, and it's a lot harder to hit than I ever thought it was going to be. As a matter of fact, most of the time I don't hit it at all. Most of the time I'm uh, pretty far from the mark. But before I was a Christian, it never bothered me. Well, well now it it makes a difference, and um, it has changed everything. But if Christianity is true, I mean, I think I'd much rather be in a, an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. And so there are times now um, when this is really hard, and um, I'm going to have to, like it is for young people who have to, to compare this worldview to the worldview that's offered by the culture. But if it's true, wow, I have got a high regard for truth. And if this is true, I am willing to conform this is kind of the act of repentance, right? This renewing of your mind. The first thing that starts in the, any presentation of the gospel is that you have to be at a place where you realize that you, you've been all about you and, um, and and done a bunch of stuff you shouldn't have done in, in the course of that. And now here you are at this point in life, um, and the, it starts with an act of repentance, an act of renewing your mind of changing your mind about who you think you are. I'll tell you, I, I learned a lot about Jesus investigating the Gospels, but I wasn't a Christian. I just knew a bunch of stuff about the Gospels. I didn't become a Christian until I stopped reading the New Testament to see what it told me about Jesus and started reading it to see what it told me about me. And once I did that, I realized, ooh, that's not pretty. And it's pretty accurate. <laughs> I mean, I saw myself as the guy on the pages of, of, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Who, who never um, sought God, who's, who no one is good. And I, I, knew, I knew that even the guys I was taking to jail, I knew that I was one of those guys just on the other side of the badge. And so I knew that I, I needed a Savior. Now, now, what was great about it was that I had investigated the Gospels enough to know that there was a Savior out there. 
And once I discovered my own need, I knew that the answer was waiting for me, had always been waiting for me. And that's part of what I think happens to us as we um, kind of investigate the claims of Christianity. And if someone wanted to accept Christ today, they're listening to this and message is resonating with them, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, it's really the offer is so simple that anyone has enough information to access it. And then you'll spend the rest of your life learning about it. It's simple enough for, for anyone to recognize, number one, who do you think you are, really? If there is a God out there that is powerful enough to create everything from nothing, an all-powerful God, if there's such a being out there, he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection as well. That means I don't worship a good God. I worship a morally perfect God. So if you think you've had a good day and you're a good person, we're not suggesting that as Christians that someday we're going to be standing in front of a good God, because if that's the case, you're going to measure up. No, we're going to be standing in front of a morally perfect day. I have never been morally perfect, not for a second. There's the problem. There's the dilemma. It's an oil and water problem, is that we in our moral imperfection cannot be in the presence of a morally perfect God. Unless, of course, there's some kind of a way, an offer being made, in which we could kind of wear the perfection of Jesus standing in front of the morally perfect God. That Jesus becomes the ambassador, he cloaks us, that, that basically he does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. All you'd have to do to accept that kind of an offer is, run number one, recognize that you are not morally perfect and that you need forgiveness. You need to accept the positional perfection of Jesus because you're not practically perfect yourself. And so that's what happens is that now when I stand in front of God, because I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, he sees the perfection of Jesus instead of the moral imperfection of me. And I'm trusting in the moral perfection of Jesus standing in front of as God himself who came in the form of a human. That's what It's not like you're saying, I'm going to have another human stand in my place. Jesus is God incarnate. So all it takes is us, number one, saying, hey, I need, I need that. I need that Savior because I'm not morally perfect. And two, I am willing to repent of my who I am and admit who I am and accept what Jesus has done on the cross. Now that start, just to, just to acknowledge that in your head, to verbalize that before God, that is where this journey begins. That's not where it ends. It begins there. And then stand by. Stand by to stand by. You're going to see some stuff happen now in your own life that maybe you didn't anticipate because that's the beginning of the journey. Jay Warner Wallace, the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, the website coldcasechristianity.com. Thanks for uh, thanks so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it, and best of luck with this book. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is a great show, and I was glad to be on it. Jay Warner Wallace with us. We'd like to thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless.